Well, last week we commenced our study of the Gospel of Matthew. And we noted that it is the most Jewish of the four Gospels, that it has more references and allusions to the Old Testament than the other three Gospels combined. Today, we are going to read the account of the birth of our Lord from the perspective of Joseph, which is distinct from the perspective of Mary, which is recorded for us in the Gospel of Luke. How did Matthew come to know this account? Beats me. Maybe he heard it from Jesus. Jesus probably heard it growing up. It's not uncommon for parents to describe events to their children. Or, or maybe like Luke, he did his research and he talked to Mary who herself had heard it from Joseph. We don't know for sure. But this is the word of the Lord. It is inerrant. It is inspired. It is for our life. So, brothers and sisters, please turn your attention to Matthew chapter 1 as we read verses 18 through 25. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage and we thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you for not just sending your son, but for inspiring the recording of two accounts of it. Thank you. Grant that we would marvel. Grant that we would have faith. And grant that we would be found faithful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as we said just a few moments ago, this is the most Jewish of the four Gospels. And here, Matthew begins the section that's referred to as his infancy narrative. 
from chapter 1, verse 18, through the end of chapter 2, Matthew is going to tell the story, so to speak, of, of baby Jesus. How he's born, how he's visited by the wise men, how they have to flee to Egypt, and how they make their return back in to uh, Israel, and specifically how they wind up in Galilee. Okay? Uh, these verses here, this infancy narrative, is constructed around five Old Testament texts. Five Old Testament texts are weaved into the construction of this infancy narrative to make the case. He's not simply making the case that Jesus is the fulfillment of prophecy, or that these prophets were talking about him, and Jesus is, ta-da, here, now that's done. He's making something deeper. And some of the passages that he's going to allude to in this infancy narrative are more about revealing the point that Jesus is experiencing in his person the experience of faithful Israel over 2,000 years. Jesus is true Israel. And he experiences what the people have experienced at their various points and times. So he's not simply a king. He is the embodiment of true faith, the true son of Abraham. And in so much then as the descendant of David, he is truly the Lord's anointed to lead his people. But here we get to the account of Joseph being told that his betrothed is pregnant and not by him, not by someone else, but by the Holy Spirit. We come today to the doctrine known as the virgin birth. This doctrine is absolutely essential. It's amazing to me that in the 19th century, uh, as the fundamentalist modernist debates were heating up, the liberals, and I mean that in the, in the true technical sense, not just the pejorative that, that conservatives, which is also, ugh, we, we're so sloppy with our language nowadays. But, 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 but in the late 19th century, early 20th century, liberal meant something. Okay, it, it, it meant a certain commitment to certain things. Uh, but the liberals attacked the virgin birth with greater vigor, way greater vigor than they attacked the resurrection itself, uh, which is incredible to me. But understand off the bat that the virgin birth is an article of prime importance. Okay? This is an article of our faith that we would say is essential. This is not something that we agree to disagree on. If, if, you, if you don't agree, then the entire weight of the Christian church is on my side to say, you're not a Christian. And what we mean by this is this, that Jesus was conceived in the womb of a woman who had had no sexual relations or interactions with any male. She was a virgin at the time of her conception. And that the, the baby conceived in her womb was conceived ek, that is out of, that is the, the sources of the Holy Spirit, is what he's told by the, by the angel. 
No, no human gen male genetic code went into Mary's womb to conceive Jesus. Now, what we do not mean is what some of the loopy so-called church doctors came to say in the early church. When we speak of the virgin birth, we really mean virginal conception. Because understand that some of the church fathers went in a totally loopy way, and when they say virgin birth, they mean that Jesus was born in such a way that he passed through the birth canal in such a way that even then, Mary's true virginity remained intact. Wow. All right, then. Um, but that's not what we're saying. We're saying that Jesus, in a true mystery, that God, the Holy Spirit, who we confess is the Lord and giver of life, that the Holy Spirit, who, who was the agent of creation at the, at the dawn of time, who created all that is in the space of a woman, of a young woman's womb, took one of her eggs and spontaneously created human life. Not something perverse, like in the Greek mythology where a, where a god takes the form of a, of a person or, or, or even more disgustingly, an animal. And, and nothing like that. We're talking about the spontaneous creation of life without means, a true miracle. And what's truly astounding is the same spirit who gives life at creation, who creates life in the womb, is also the same spirit who creates new life within us. The same spirit who indwelled Christ indwells us. That is awesome. But there are several things about this passage that I want to draw our attention to because it enhances our faith, our awe, our wonder, and our faithfulness. So first of all, in verse 18, we learn that uh, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And this is from Joseph's perspective. Earlier today, we, when the candles were lit, the Advent candles were lit, uh, the Riveras read from Luke, and we learn of the announcement of the angel to Mary from that passage. Well, here, the angel talks to Joseph. And before, when they, had been in, when they had been betrothed, before they came together, she's found to be pregnant. Now, first of all, this concept of betrothal is really difficult for us to, to, to wrap our minds around. Um, it's not just engagement. It, it's basically a marriage period where it would take, it was enacted by, a, by an act almost as official as marriage, and it would take an act as official as a divorce to end. But essentially what would happen is they would get betrothed, which is promised to marry, officially committed to marry. But then they wouldn't live together. She would stay at her parents' house. And a large part of the purpose of the betrothal was to prove that she was not pregnant. Because what was absolutely essential and in accordance with the law 
was that a, a, a man for his marriage, for his wife to not be a soiled woman, for the children to be legitimate heirs, she, she needed to not be pregnant. The penalties of the law were severe for a woman who was betrothed but found to be pregnant by, the, by someone else. She was to be stoned. But the culture of the day was such that it, it's, it's almost criminal to our mind. It's, it's jarring to us to think that this is the culture. But the burden of proof is on anyone who wants to suggest that Mary and Joseph did not follow the culture, the cultural norms of the day. Okay, So if you want to envision something different in your mind, understand the burden of proof is on you. Because here's how it normally went down. Normally, it went down where the marriage would have been arranged, okay? They would have had very little contact with one another, like in many sectors of the world even now where marriages are arranged and they don't really meet each other until wedding day. She, ordinarily, would have been about 12 or 13. He, ordinarily, would have been about 17 or 18. Very young. Now, the thing that I marvel at when I hear their ages is, one, their faith. Think, think about, she's, she's a 12 or 13-year-old girl. By, by our standards, a girl. And we see from Luke her response of faith to what God says, but... But then her, her creative capacity, she writes the Magnificat, which, you know, anybody, ever, people write silly songs all the time. The fact that she came up with a song doesn't, but it's the song she came up with that's steeped in biblical comprehension, theological literacy, biblical awareness. It's, it's awesome. And she was no dummy. She understood full well the cultural backlash of being in her situation and being found pregnant. And virginal birds, virginal conceptions were just as common then as they are now. And if someone looks you in the eye and swears they didn't do anything, you still don't believe them because you know how it works. Flipping over to Joseph, he knew how it works. That's why he was resolved to divorce her. No one just gets pregnant. Okay? But Joseph, being a man of his age, he understood something too. Understand Mary was not the only one in, in a hard place. In his culture, he, he, there, this was not an option to, to divorce or not. Culturally speaking, if he took her in, her stink became his stink. And he would be ostracized. He would be a, we, th we say he was a carpenter. Good luck, Mr. Carpenter, when no one will hire you or, or contract you. Ugh. But at 17 or 18, it says that in verse 19, that he was a just man or, or a righteous man. So he's two things. He's just or righteous. And second, he's unwilling to put her to open shame. Two things. That's what he is. 
It's not saying because he was just, he didn't want to put her to shame. No, it's saying he's two things. His justness or his righteousness refers to the fact that he lived in conformity to the word of God. He followed the law. He kept the law. And so because he was righteous and he wanted to follow the law, he he knew that he had to, to do something. But he was also compassionate. And and right here you see a man who understands a righteous interpretation of the law or application of the law, and he is to be immediately place marked. Keep keep your, put, put a little dog ear right here and contrast how he interprets and applies the law with how the Pharisees and the Sadducees do. You see, the law had two provisions for someone in this case. One is the fact that Deuteronomy says that a woman who's betrothed and is found pregnant is is to be stoned. But then again, the law says that for any reason, he could divorce her. There's a perspective that wants to use the law and all of its weaponized force to really turn the screws and hurt other people. And there's a way to look at the law. Okay, within the parameters of what the law allows, what's the most compassionate thing I can do? And he shows compassion. He is not simply trying to turn the screw. How dare she put me to shame? How dare she be unfaithful? He's not thinking along those lines. His heart is in the right place. And I could go even further. This this infancy narrative, it features prominently two people. Two people are featured prominently in this infancy narrative from chapter 1 to chapter 2. Joseph, who is repeatedly mentioned, and Herod. It invites a character contrast. How they both receive the word of the Lord from different sources, but they both receive it, and how they respond, and what God ultimately honors. I'm in amazement at Joseph's faithfulness and his maturity at 17 or 18, and coupled with Mary, it is no wonder. You don't, don't think for a moment that Jesus was not shaped by his upbringing. He grew in wisdom. And this same household produced two writers of our New Testament. Anyone know who these two other writers of the New Testament are? James and Jude. So God didn't just use Joseph and Mary's faithfulness in isolation for Jesus. He he also constructed the family unit as a covenantal outpost in which the faith that he desires is nurtured. And the man, Joseph, he's in a tough place. And the Lord sends an angel who tells him what to do. This is kind of an insight into how God often works. He he lets us sit with things for a while before he reveals the third way. Joseph is sitting there mulling over what's the best way to do things. And finally, the Lord sends the third way. Now, we don't get angels There's a cluster of angelic appearances around the birth of Jesus because it was an epoch-shifting thing. But it does 
ring true that the Lord oftentimes lets us sit and stew before he reveals the third way. And he gives Joseph in a set of instructions. Joseph, son of David, reminding us that because of Joseph's connection to David, with David being in the lineage and Joseph adopting Jesus, Jesus will now be in the lineage of David. He gives him a command in verse 21, you are to call his name Jesus. Understand when it says you shall call his name, he's not being esoteric and spiritual. He's giving a command. A very literal translation of that clause would be you are to call his name Jesus. Just very straightforward. I'm telling you what to do. And Joseph is obedient. He names what the angel says to name because he is faithful to the Lord and to his word. And all this, we're told, is to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet back in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. Much ink has been spilt about this verse and how Matthew is using this verse. And if you read Matthew, Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 in its original context, it, you may be scratching your head as well. You see, Isaiah, in his prophecy, he used one of two Hebrew words that he could have used. There's a Hebrew word that means very technically what we would say is a virgin. And there's a Hebrew word that means a young woman of marriageable age. Guess which one he used? He used the one that culturally, normally assumes actual scientific virginity, but not requiring it. And that has been a big hoo ever since. Ever since the Lord had him do that. Why did the Lord do that? Well, it's because there's a near and a far application. You see, if this gets us deep into the waters of how you read and apply the Old Testament. There's a school of thought that would have you go back to Isaiah's day and have Isaiah utter words that were utterly nonsensical to the ears of everyone around them. That made absolutely no sense had nothing, nothing, no relevance at all, and then 700 years later, they suddenly, aha, that's what he meant. And that's not the school of thought that I think is responsible. That does not make sense of the context, but there is a school of thought that says, when you read Old Testament prophecy, oftentimes the near and the far applications are kind of murked together in the mind of, because he's in a dream. And so there is an immediate application, but then there's a, a, a greater reality that it's pointing to. And specifically, here's the situation that Isaiah was talking to. If you look at Isaiah chapter 7, verse or 7 and through 9, the historical counterpart is in 2 Kings 16. You've got to read those two together, otherwise Isaiah 7 makes no sense, and you'll spiritualize it. Ahaz is the king of Judah, and he's a wretched, wretched man. He's just sacrificed his own son to Molech. That means he killed his son 
alive and burnt him alive to Molech. He's a wretched, wicked man. And two kings have created a confederacy to go and attack the king of the north and the king of Syria. And they are coming in hot. And they are coming in heavy. And the southern kingdom of Judah, led by this terrible, terrible man, is getting ready to be seriously knocked for a blow. Flip over to Isaiah chapter 7. The Lord, in his great mercy, even though they are wicked and wretched and have a child-murdering, sacrificing king on the throne, sends Isaiah to give assurance that this is not the end of Judah. So ask of me a sign. And if you just read Isaiah, you're going to think, why is, why is Isaiah so hard on Ahaz? Because Ahaz is pious. He goes, I'm not going to put the Lord to the test. That sounds so pious. But it's a pious sounding dodge. It's what religious, uh, it's what people in power have to do when, when, when they're confronted by someone who represents something that they, they have to deal with, like their religious constituents. They got to say something religious-y. You see, in, in 2 Kings 16, you see what he was really thinking. You know how I'm going to get around these two kings that are attacking me? I'm going to reach out to Assyria. And I'm going to get Assyria to come and fight my battle for me. And that will save me from these two kings that are coming against me. And so in Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet says, you know what? Behold, you're not going to ask for a sign because you've got your own plan and you don't want the Lord's help. You don't want the Lord's involvement. Well, I'll tell you what. You're getting a sign anyway. Behold, the virgin, the young lady, will conceive and have a son. And before this kid is old enough to know left from right and good and wrong, the two kings will be destroyed. But then, oh then, Assyria is going to come and take you away. It's a pretty profound passage. But what he's saying in Isaiah 7 is the Lord is with us and here's a sign of him being with us and I'm offering and inviting you to receive the Lord with you as blessing but if you will not have it, the Lord is still with you but he will be with you in punishment. And so then circling around 700 years later at the birth of Christ, we see now in its fullest expression, the evidence, the proof that God is with us. And we see that God in his awesome sense of humor and his ability to, to, to play both sides of the knife, he takes that word that in the original Hebrew could have meant just a young woman, and he applies it in the most literal sense possible, to the scientific side so that she is truly a virgin. And we get Emmanuel, God with us, in the person of Jesus. So, first, Jesus is God's sign that God is for us. Salvation has come in, through, and by Jesus. He has saved us from our sins. That is the purpose of his mission. That is the reason for his name. Jesus is the center of not only our faith, but the center of our reality. 
Jesus is everything. Second, remember the Holy Spirit. He is the Lord and giver of life, the one who brought life to Mary's womb. He's the same spirit who began the world, the same spirit who creates new life within us. He's the same spirit at work within us. You have truly, in the words of Peter, been made a partaker of the divine nature. That's glorious. And that is a reason for hope right there, that God is doing something awesome in and through you. And finally, again, this is not principally about reader character uh, profiles, but look at Joseph here. Look at Mary and Luke. It's astounding. Their faithfulness. That is what personal piety should look like where there's a zealous commitment to the word of the Lord, but yet the word is not being treasured so that way I have a weapon to turn it against someone else in their time of need or in their time of offense even. That's awesome. Joseph was asked to do something hard. Mary was asked to do something hard. They don't know yet that in God's providence... He's going to direct them over to Bethlehem. They're going to get out of Dodge for a little while. And then then they're going to move from Bethlehem to Egypt for about a year to 18 months. And then they're going to come back. And then they're going to go up to Galilee. He's getting them out of the place where the stink would have been a a life-crippling thing for them. God is gracious. So I don't know what hard things are in your life or what hard things God is going to have you do. But understand that even what he's done for Mary and Joseph here, he shows how he cares for his people. And when he gives you a hard task, you won't know what the advanced providences are going to be that get you around. But you can walk in faith that they will come. So, This passage lays out the news of the virgin birth of Jesus. The Holy Spirit, the Father, the Son, the glorious Trinitarian truth that the only begotten Son of the Father is now in the womb of a virgin. That Joseph and Mary are going to raise this boy and an entire household in the fear and admonition of the Lord. This is a glorious thing, one we celebrate each and every Christmas. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for all that you have taught us. You were there for Joseph. You were there for Mary. You'll be there for us. Because you have sent your son who is proof positive that you are in fact there for us. Grant that when things seem hard. When things seem almost unbelievably hard. That we would have the faith and obedience to walk in accordance with your word. Animated by the same benevolent spirit that is near and dear to you. And grant that in all things, 
we would remember Jesus, who is the center of our very reality. Thank you, Jesus, for coming, for living and for dying, for paying the penalty of our sins that we might be freed from them. We pray all things in your glorious name, O Lord. Amen.